Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Um, while you do that, let's open in prayer. Lord, you are so kind and gracious to us, and there is never a time that you, that you ever, ever come at us with harshness that is not also gentle. May we accept correction and, and discipline as they are meant in love, but may we also just have a palpable sense of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Today, we're going to be reading Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew's the Gospel writer. His announcement of, of Jesus as what's known as the suffering servant from the prophet Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 42. Um, this is a famous, and I mean famous essentially since Isaiah was written, as a messianic passage of the Old Testament, and, and, and the, the, the Messiah or the, the Mashiach, Messianic, essentially just means that it's a point, it's a, it's a passage pointing to the one who is promised who will reconcile all wrongs. Uh, we would also use the same word Christ when we say Jesus Christ. We're saying Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, the one promised, the one set apart for a very particular purpose. Um, the, the, when, when we look at prophecy, prophecy is kind of a funky word. Uh, prophecy is not premonition. Um, it's not just re just knowing something that's going to happen in the future. Oftentimes, prophets in the Old Testament were given these these um, visions of what was going to happen, but they didn't really know how to describe it, and so they describe it uh, sometimes poetically. Sometimes they just straight up use the words of the Lord. Right? How many of you know that phrase? Thus saith the Lord. Right? So Isaiah is is quoting God. In Isaiah 42, he's quoting what God is saying. Isaiah was more the prophet that, you know, God has said it, therefore I just repeat it like a parrot. Um, but, but when we talk about prophecy, there's some really bad interpretations of that word in our culture and even in Christian culture. A prophet is a mouthpiece. So uh, if you are going to prophetess in a trumpet, you put the mouthpiece on the trumpet. That's what it is. The prophet, the prophetes, the Greek word for it, is just that mouthpiece that would go in the trumpet that makes it, has it make noise. You ever tried to use a, a trumpet without the, the mouthpiece? It just sounds stupid. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just tell you that. Um, one, one such bad understanding of, of prophecy, uh, even, even in Christian circles, is that it can fall uh, or it, it can be ruined. So um, just the other day, my, my family loves watching movies. We, we watch movies all the time. And we were watching this movie about a main character who's fulfilling an ancient prophecy, uh, but she fulfills it by breaking it. Now, what I mean by that is the prophecy was wrong in the way it occurred, but it was right in the result that happened. Can you think of a biblical prophecy that's like that? No, you can't. When God decrees something, when he says this is what's going to happen, he means exactly that. There might be some poetic sides to it, 
When God says, for instance, in Isaiah, Isaiah 45, where Cyrus is his instrument of judgment, um, was Cyrus literally an instrument? No. No, he was neither a knife nor a trumpet. But God had set him up and used him for a particular purpose. So um, this movie that I, that I was watching, it, like, you... You hear the prophecy at the beginning, this ancient prophecy about how all evil is going to be eradicated and it's all the mean points of humanity and, and how it's going to occur, but then it actually gets ruined because the instrument of that eradication of evil ends up being shot. I'm not going to ruin it. If you, if, if you, if you know the movie I'm talking about, great. If you don't, also great. So, <laughs> because it was a good movie. Um, but that human element of, uh, uh, exists in our understanding of prophecy, where the human element is failure, it's faultness, it's, it's messing up. So sometimes when we read a prophecy, we're like, gee, I wonder if that ever happened or ever will happen when we read the Old Testament. And this is actually the view that many in Jesus' time had taken about prophecy. Maybe they missed or killed the, the Messiah. They, there were many who were devout that said, we're still waiting on this Messiah. We're still expecting him. But there were others who had lost hope, who had decided that, you know, maybe, maybe I missed it. That's also one of the points of the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. So let's, let, let's understand, uh, and we're going we're gonna to dig into it, but there is no human element when it comes to God's decrees in the sense that there's no failure possible. When God says something is going to happen, guess what? It's going to happen 100% of the time. And so today we're going to look at a passage of where Jesus is, a, is the promised hope for hurting sinners. And Matthew's going to make that clear. So Matthew 12, starting in verse 15, going to 21. Let's, let's read. I'm going to read. You listen, but listen intently. Jesus, aware of this, which, by the way, is his, uh, the Pharisees starting to think to kill him and conspire against him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope." This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, verse 15 picks up where we left off last week. Um, actually, backtracking a little bit, Jesus in this section is shown to be the servant God intended to bring about, uh, about salvation and restoration to the whole world. That's your sermon summary on the inside. Um, it's accomplished in two Ways. One that I would say is the, the explicit way, and the other is the implicit way. So the explicit is Jesus', Jesus perfect fulfillment of this prophecy, and the, the implicit is Jesus' compassionate care for the afflicted. 
Um, we left off last week, like I mentioned, where the Pharisees, so upset, so indignant, so frustrated that, that, that they were wrong, that now they start conspiring against Jesus. They're trying to figure out a way to kill him. And Jesus, being aware of it because he's capable of, of knowing what men's hearts are, Jesus withdraws. Now, when we hear the word withdraw, we might think retreat. And that's actually right. Jesus retreated. Jesus backed off. Jesus left the synagogue. Jesus stopped talking to the Pharisees at that time. Because his duty was greater than, uh, his duty at the time was greater than his death that the Pharisees would have conspired against him. And ultimately they're right. I mean, they, they actually do enact this uh, this murder, this unjust murder of Jesus, but, but it's not his time, so he withdraws. He's got more important things to do. He's still got people to heal. He's still got words to speak. He's still got things to do. It's just not God's plan for him to die at that time. So Jesus withdraws from this escalating hostility and he's not seeking their approval, but ultimately the approval of his father in doing exactly what his work is meant to be. So what happens then when Jesus withdraws, when he retreats? Does he hide in a cave like Elijah? Nope. Does he run in the opposite direction like Jonah and get sucked up into a fish? Nope. Jesus actually just continues his work. He, he can, he, crowds of people come after him. This is a summary statement. When we're, we're going to read at, like the more that occurs during that time, um, but, but Matthew is giving us a summary statement saying very specifically that, uh, that many follow him and he heals all of them. So he continues this work. He continues proving that he is the Messiah and he continues showing the, the, the benefits of, of God's restoration. Um, but notice, notice what he tells them not to do in verse 16. He says, uh, Jesus, is, well, Matthew summarizes it, but Jesus is telling them, don't make this known. Don't tell people about this. Don't. Don't, uh, don't go ahead and walk around and say, you know what? I used to be lame or crippled or blind or deaf or, or mute, and Jesus healed me. He says, don't do that. Why does he do that? Because it corresponds with his withdrawing. Jesus is, is withdrawing to not mount hostility from, from the, the Pharisees, and he, he is telling people, don't, don't boast about me from other, uh, to other people. Because, again, that hostility that's rising in the Pharisees, it has a boiling point. And that boiling point is coming. And Jesus knows that that boiling point is coming. He knows when that boiling point is coming, but, but, but he, it's not that time. So Jesus withdraws and continues healing. And I don't know about you, but if I could do the things that Jesus did, I'd be walking around all proud of myself. Like, yeah, look at me. <laughs> this is great. I, I can do these miracles. I can take the, take the lame and make them walk. So why didn't Jesus do that? In short, just to summarize, because that's not what his father intended for him to do. 
You see, any man who had these miraculous powers uh, would be incapable of not swelling with pride, not becoming pompous in their ability to stump the religious elites, wouldn't be capable of not marching down the street with their chest puffed out. You ever, you ever, you ever, I, I, maybe it's just guys, but whenever you accomplish something, like I was digging a root out of the yard not too long ago, and when I finally got it free, when I finally yanked it out of the ground, I just couldn't help but go, puff out my chest, and just, yeah, like walk around Peter Pan stance, you know, like, <laughs> you, you can't, you can't not do that. You can't not swell with pride when you accomplish something that's monumental. But Jesus is not just any man. He's the Messiah. He's God incarnate. He's the Savior. He's the anointed one who'd been promised. And Matthew is telling you, this is him. This is the guy. This is who Isaiah was prophesying about. Unfortunately, though, this wasn't understood by the Jews. More specifically, it wasn't understood by the Pharisees. Now, the mind frame at the time of, 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 of the Messiah is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to usher in this new prosperous kingdom. He's the new David. He's going he's gonna to come and he's going to be a military conqueror. He's going to have victories in battle. He's going to rescue Israel from their Gentile oppressors and give Israel prosperity and make everyone else suffer under the thumb of Israel. They had misunderstood what Isaiah had said. And it had become so commonplace that they, had, they, they, they didn't even recognize him when he came. I've said it time and time again, but the Pharisees should have been the first allies of Jesus. Being experts in the law, they should have come right alongside Jesus and they should have been like, this is the Messiah, this is him, look at him, look at these things he's doing. Got baptized and the spirit descended like a dove. People heard, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's healing people. The Pharisees should have been like, there's something right with this guy, but that's not what they did. Instead of being his allies, they became his opponents. They misunderstood the Messiah. And Matthew is trying to set us straight. Matthew is trying to remind his readers, this is the guy. This is the guy. So he's making the point. Matthew is making the point here that his actions of withdrawing, his, his healing, his ask, uh, Jesus asking his patience not to make him known, is fulfilling Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. Christ is the servant whom God has chosen, uh, his beloved with whom his soul is well pleased. Right? Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Matthew's telling us this is the guy. God says, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, which, by the way, in, in the mindset at the time, he will proclaim justice essentially means he will announce his own victory over the Gentiles. That's how they were reading it. But, but we, we know different because we're in a time where we understand that Jesus, Jesus was the Christ, right? We even call him Jesus Christ. So, so but that's part of their misunderstanding is they're, they're misreading this sentence. 
So I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. By withdrawing from the controversy, by not standing in opposition to the Pharisees and quarreling with his opponents, Jesus simply met this qualification, walked right through it. To quarrel, by the way, means to engage in verbal battle. You ever, you ever hear about that? You ever think about that? Have you ever engaged with ver in verbal battle with someone? All of us have. Jesus didn't. I, I would never live up to that standard. Uh, so, so notice also, when you read your Bible, when we've gone through these first 12 chapters of Matthew, right? Um, has Jesus ever quarreled with the Pharisees? No. He actually has not. He's only rebuked and corrected them. He hasn't done a blow for blow, a tit for tat with them. But instead, when he talks to the Pharisees, he just stumps them, <laughs> says exactly what needs to be said, and moves on. So, that, so, so by not quarreling with his opponents, he's meeting that first qualification. Second qualification would then be not hearing his voice in the streets. Um, Common in the time, common in the olden days, when a, when, a, when, a guy, when a person would win a battle, they would form their army and they'd walk through the streets in parade, right? Um, actually, that just happened here in Toledo. The, the, the students at Toledo High who graduated, the seniors, had a parade put on that went down uh, Main Street. The, the, um, the fire department, the police department like headed the parade. Why? Because they conquered high school. They conquered what, what, what was a, an educational hurdle, and now they're through it. But in the time, you would have the whole army that would amass, and they'd march through the streets of a main city, announcing their victory. And Jesus didn't do that. He didn't walk down the street declaring his own greatness and grandeur. Instead, he tells people to remain quiet. And so therefore, he's meeting that portion of the prophecy. So Jesus is fulfilling these roles, but he's not, he's not doing it in the way that the Pharisees expect, right? The Pharisees should have been his first, his, his first allies, but they weren't. Why? Short answer, because God had deemed it so. Such is the decree of God that it happens 100% of the time. And in fact, in reference to Israel, which is more fulfilled in the, prof the, or in the Pharisees, in the same chapter, Isaiah 42, verse 20, God, God says of, of them, he sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. God made this whole thing happen from start to finish. God is setting it up so that it happens exactly as he intends. Nothing could ruin this. Nothing could ruin from Jesus's, uh, the time in which he came to the time in which he died and everything surrounding that, nothing could break that. This whole situation was foretold centuries before Jesus came. And here I'm finally getting to a point. <laughs> um, it was being ordered precisely as God had intended it to precisely accomplish his plan. 
Remember that God is the one who, as Paul says, works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. He ordains sovereignly and providentially everything that happens so that none of his plans can be thwarted, Job 42.2. It's been done according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, Acts 2.23. God is ordaining every last ounce of this from start to finish so that his redemption can come and nothing can stop it. There is no human element in this prophecy. In the, fa- in the coming of the Savior, nothing will stop God from start to finish. Nothing, no thing, not a single thing. When we read passages like this in Matthew, it can sound like a, like a parenthesis, almost like an aside, almost like a, yeah, 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 keep going, now I want to get back to the story. But it's utterly important. Jesus is who he is. When God says, I am that I am to Moses, when he, when he, sa- when he declares his name as Yahweh, I am who I am has sent you, So is Jesus. He is who he is, and he just naturally meets these qualifications of the suffering servant. He's like a puzzle that's already formed. Even before it's laid down on the table, it's already put together. God is the one who says of himself, for I am God and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 49, or 46, 9 through 10. You and I, we're trapped in time. Our plans get thwarted. My plans got thwarted the other day. I had every intention to have fun with my kids outside. You know what happened? Rained. (laughs) My plans were immediately thwarted just by raindrops from the sky. Couldn't take them to the park. Couldn't go to the beach. Couldn't go on a walk. Stuck at home with, with, with three kids that honestly don't do well when they're stuck at home. But God's plans are not thwarted. Never, never, ever, 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 ever. <laughs> there, nothing can stop it. And that's where the sin of the Pharisees was, was, was really quite messed up because they, they knew what the Messiah would look like. But they missed the Messiah when he came. So there's both a rebuke, uh, a, a, a conviction, and a hope. In, in Matthew quoting these verses. First, first the rebuke, right? Uh, we should not be prideful like the Pharisees, pretending we know how God is ordering things. How many of you do that? I do, I do, that, I do that every single day where I'm like, I'm going to wake up this morning and I'm going to have a good day. <laughs> or I'm going to wake up this morning and I'm, I'm going to have a bad day. And then the Lord turns that around. But even worse is when we look at prophecies that have not yet occurred and saying... This is the order. This is how I know it's going to be done. And I know that's stepping on some toes. I get it. But hey, you know what? I don't care. Because that's the problem that the Pharisees had. They had it all ordered out. This is exactly what the Messiah is going to look like. And it wasn't. Because they were stuck knowing, knowing what their times were and what the limitations of God were. 
But when Jesus came, he didn't fake it till he made it, till he made it, didn't force himself to play this part. He just was. And that's how God's plans are from start to finish. They just are. There's nothing that can mess it up. So we should not pretend like we know the end. Okay? Okay? Prophecy is best interpreted in hindsight. I promise you. <laughs> when, 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 when the end times come, you and I, we're going to be like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's how it happened. Didn't see that coming. And we're all going to be surprised. But you know who's not going to be surprised? God. So do not be like the Pharisees. Don't fix in your mind exactly what it's going to look like. Our duty is to have our hearts aligned with God's will. Our duty is, is to, to serve him and glorify him. And you know what? The natural result is that you'll find yourself joining him in his work instead of opposing it like the Pharisees. Now the hope. The hope lies in the fact that we cannot break God's plans. You can't. I can't. Nobody can break God's plans. Jesus will come again. He will come again. He did come. He will come again. And, and, and we should be encouraged when we read this, when we, when we read this section, behold my servant whom I've chosen, we should know, okay, yeah, all right. Jesus came despite Caesar, despite uh, Herod. He came and did exactly as was planned. So you can't ruin God's plans I can't ruin God's plans. The Pharisees couldn't. In fact, the Pharisees actually played a very crucial role in God's plan. President Biden can't ruin God's plans. Nor Hitler or Chairman Mao, Kim Jong-un or, or Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin. Nobody can mess up God's plans. Nobody and nothing can stand in the way of God's purposes of redemption, reconciliation, and salvation. Is that not a hope? That should make us happy. That should, do you know how good it feels to know that I can't screw up what God has started? I screw everything up. I've built a bookshelf backwards, folks. <laughs> yeah, I can screw anything up. But I can't screw up what God has set forth, what God intends, what God has 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 set from the beginning of time, even before the beginning of time. I can't mess it up. Now let's take a look at the second part of the passage, and it, and it entails Jesus' actions and personality, and I promise this is going to take less time. But, but just, just a couple points of clarification. Look at verses 18 and 21. In 18, at the end, it says, he will, uh, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and in 21, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The Greek word is, the, is there is ethnos. Now, culturally at the time, ethnos had meant anybody not Jewish. All right? So, so that's, why we that's why it's translated in the ESV as well as various other translations as Gentiles. But, uh, but if you were to turn to Isaiah 42, actually, I would encourage you to open to Isaiah 42 because we're going to look through that instead of Matthew's, uh, Matthew's writing. But if you were to turn to Isaiah 42, the same statement uh, reads nations, which is one 
possible understanding of ethnos. Ethnos is where we derive the word ethnicities uh, in the English. But it reads nations, and then in the second part, it's ambiguous. It just says he will, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Uh, the discrepancy between Isaiah 42 and Matthew 12 is because of the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Um, the, 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 in Jesus' time, they all had the Septuagint. They didn't really have the Hebrew version. Um, it wasn't very commonly distributed and it was because Greek was that common tongue. You could take a Greek Septuagint, which was not a book. It was contained in scrolls. They would uh, scribe them out and distribute them among all the synagogues. And that's what they would read from. Jesus read from the Septuagint. It was just what they were familiar with. Uh, most of the time, it's a benefit for us to look at the Septuagint over the uh, like what we might have for Hebrew because we can understand like the thrust of what was understood interpretively. Um, a good example, Isaiah seven fourteen: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Who who heard that at Christmas? Um, the problem with the Hebrew word there is that virgin means both virgin and young woman who is not a virgin. It just means young woman. So if you open the Revised Standard Version, which is another translation of the Bible, it just says, behold, the young woman shall conceive. But then you get to the Septuagint, and the Septuagint uses the Greek word for virgin. No argument. So most of the time, the Septuagint says exactly what was intended, what was understood. Um, but, but, but now in Jesus's time, they've misunderstood the word ethnos. Instead of all nations, it means non-Jewish nations, which is why they can misunderstand that one sentence, um, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. They misunderstand that because they're thinking he's going to declare his own victory over the other nations. But that's not what it means. So if we open Isaiah 42, we, we read it a little bit differently. Uh, he will bring forth justice to the nations, which means all nations, including Israel. So I'm not saying the Septuagint is wrong. I'm not saying there's a scribal error. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is that looking at both really gives us a clear picture of what God meant. So what did God mean when he had Isaiah say this? He meant that Jesus was the hope for everyone, for all nations. We know that. It's on banners, right? We see it all. Jesus, hope of the nations, right? We, in, in churches, we have it all over the place. But... But the Jews had misunderstood it. So I want to I I help you understand their misunderstanding. Because if we understand their misunderstanding, then we can understand why Matthew put it in his gospel. And we can understand why it's important for us to get it right. So take, take a look. At, uh, if you've got Isaiah 42 open, uh, look at verse 3, which describes Jesus' character. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Do you know what a bruised reed is? You ever, you ever walk through a marsh, and you see like one, one like all, all the tall grass, and one of them's just kind of like this, right? That reed is bruised. 
it's about to snap off. Man, if the wind blows too hard, that one's gone, right? It's dead anyway. It's already, it's already bruised. It's broken over. Or have you ever watched a candle burn down to its last little ounce and it's about to hit the wax and it, the, the flame just goes down and it almost dies? Or are you like me and you put the candle out by putting the top on it and you watch it extinguish as it runs out of oxygen and it just kind of dies down and the light disappears and then poof, smoke. And then sometimes you see that last little ember on the wick. That's a smoldering wick. The character and nature of, of Christ is that he will not break the bruised reed and he will not quench the burning wick, the smoldering wick. I would like to summarize that as Jesus does not crush the wounded. We, uh, we, we discussed last week at length of why I'm so surprised at how Jesus responds to the Pharisees. In, 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 instead of calling down fire from heaven and scorching them and turning them into piles of ash or salt, he rebukes them. He corrects them. He's gracious and kind. When frankly, if I were Jesus, fire, pillar, done. <laughs> that, that's, that's how I would want to do it. But if you think back on all the times that we've read of Jesus, just in, just in 11 and a half chapters, doesn't that statement, a bruised reed he will not break, um, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, doesn't that perfectly describe Jesus' interactions? Every single one we've read, he's, he's, uh, he's done that. He's been that. Even in healing them all, like we read in Matthew 12, 15, doesn't that describe Jesus? He's taken his 12 ragtag apostles he, he allows traitors like Judas to remain in their midst, even though he knows what, what Judas is going to do. He's taught the crowds the true intent of the law. He, he's reminded them of their sin and comforted, comforted them with God's goodness and forgiveness. He's promised to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He's, he's taught them how to pray, Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. He's commanded them to lay up their treasures where it really matters, which is in heaven, Matthew 6, 19. Shown people how to practice right judgment, Matthew 7, 1 to 6. <clears throat> 7, 1 to 6. He's warned them of false prophets and false righteousness, calmed storms, healed incurable diseases. He's cast out demons. He's, he's honored friends who took their paralyzed pal and lowered him through a roof. He's brought the dead back to life, so on, so on, so on. I mean, that's just a little bit of a summary. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly glowing wick he will not extinguish. That's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus has taken those who are bruised and broken, barely burning because their flames have been, have been beaten down, and he's restored them. He's given people all that they truly need, but has done so gently. He's taken those who are both hurting and sinners, 
and come alongside them instead of beating them down like the Pharisees do. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. What a gentle, kind, and caring character Jesus possessed. He perfectly fulfilled the role of suffering servant. No hypocrisy, no failure, but also no harshness. This is who Jesus was. But is it only who Jesus was? Past tense, I mean it. Is it only who Jesus was? No. No. If you have Isaiah open, one verse that, that was not quoted by Matthew is verse 4, just the very next one. Isaiah prophesies, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He will not grow faint or discouraged. That's where Jesus is now. Right now, reigning in heaven, he has not grown faint or discouraged. Jesus, the one who does not extinguish the wick or break the reed, has not grown faint in his mission, in, in what he does. He, he is wonderfully still doing this now. Coming alongside sinners, of which all of us are, and not breaking us. Jesus' nature remains gentle today. How can I say that? Because he has not yet established justice in the earth. He has not righted all the wrongs. He has not restored his kingdom. He has not come a second time. There is not a new heavens and new earth. Because friends, if this was the new heavens and new earth, it would be terrible. And God would be unkind. Which he is not. But also look at that last statement, the coastlands wait for his law. That's another way of saying the ends of the earth. Because think about the Jewish mind. There's one continent. You can't travel across an ocean. So what, what Isaiah, what God is saying through that is that the coastlands are waiting for his law. That means that even in our own area, which ironically is a coastland, there are people that are still waiting for God's rules of gentle correction, his salvation, to come. When we read Isaiah 42, we read of, of God's chosen suffering servant. It's a song. It's a song of praise. If you were to read Isaiah 41, chapters 41 to 44, you would see things just ripe with Jesus. You would just see every little bit. Uh, and it can get confusing because sometimes when God talks about a servant, he's actually talking about Israel and Israel's failings. So if it's, a, if it's a bad thing, it's not Jesus. But you would just see it ripe with messianic hope. Isaiah 42.1 says to behold God's servant. The word behold means to look. It's, it's like if you had, um, I don't know, let's say you're at a baseball game and, and, and the, the ball gets hit and it's stray and it's coming straight for your head and somebody says, look out, you, you, look out. That's what behold means. Behold means to look with absolute emphatic intent. 
Look to the one whom God has chosen, his own son, his chosen servant, who does not break bruised reeds or snuff out faintly burning wicks. Look at the one who perfectly fulfilled this prophecy. Look at the one who in every possible way is the treasure of a human heart. Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote a gold mine of a book on Isaiah 42.3. That one verse, that one verse, it's, it's, it's appropriately titled The Bruised Reed. I, I would recommend you read it to see the gentle and caring nature of Christ and our, our necessary response to it. But he uses this description of Jesus. He says this, are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds, open all before him, and go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than sin in you. Behold, behold the Christ who has more mercy in him than sin in you. He will not break you if you're crushed under legalistic terror. He will not, he will not blow you out if you are just barely, barely hanging on to your faith. Jesus is the one who simply fulfilled this prophecy, just being who he was. He was God's plan. God's plan came to fruition. Why? Because God planned it. We're to remember that in both fact and experience. So therefore, behold him. Behold him who will not break your wounded spirit. Jesus is the promised hope for hurting sinners. Jesus, not me, not this church, not VBS, not, uh, not, not a, food, a food pantry, not any ministry that we could do. None of that is the hope for the hurting sinner. Everything we do is supposed to be to behold him, to look to Jesus, to delight in him, to love him. So therefore, my practical application for all of you this week is to look upon Christ in his word, experience his tender mercy on you, and to behold him. That's it. It's not hard. <laughs> it's good. If it is hard... Pray even more fervently that you might have the strength to behold him. If Jesus, if Christianity seems cold and dead and dry to you, the problem's not with Christ. Problem's not even with other people. The problem is that you are a faintly glowing wick. And you need to go to the one who will not snuff you out. Go to him, friends. Let's pray and we can sing our last song. Lord, if there is a person in this room who's not tired and weary, then honestly, I wonder if they're not self-deluded or, uh, or, or, or just trying to fake it until they make it. We are all weary in this world, this world ripe with evil, and we need you. We need, we need to behold you. We need to look on you, whom, whom God has chosen. Your father chose you. Why? Because you were the only one capable of doing exactly what was necessary to fulfill the exact plans of salvation and redemption in this world. Come to us, O oh God, who does not break bruised reeds and restore us. In Jesus' name, amen. Knowing that Jesus is...
precisely who was promised, the only one able to fulfill the, fulfill the messianic promises, um, knowing that he is not going to break you as a bruised reed and extinguish you if you're a faintly glowing wick, should cause you to want to behold him. But I'm praying for you all. I'm praying that, that the Lord might want you, make you want to behold him more and more. That's why we gather, is to look to him. So, go this week. Read God's word. Pray to him and know that I am praying for all of you. Go in peace, saints.